As a jaded comics fan of long standing, I must confess to having tired of the constant second act nature of mainstream comics. Now, this isn't me demanding these things should come to an end. The characters are eternal and should remain so. But coming from the UK, I'm used to stories that have endings. Over in the West and Europe, stories conclude. The Robin Hood legend is better for its conclusion. Jonah Hex is given added depth for knowing that it ends. The legend of King Arthur has added potency for being concluded. As such, I find myself becoming bored with Superman and Batman and, yes, even Spider-Man, as the wheel spinning becomes more and more obvious and tiresome. So when a story comes along that not only bowls you over, but gives me what I want, an ending... For my favourite character, I'm delighted. Such was it with Spider-Man Life Story by Chips Darsky and Mark Bagley. The premise for this story sounded intriguing from the start. What if Peter Parker had continued to age in real time as he did for the first five or so years of his existence? However, comics are expensive now whole other argument I won't get into here, so I decided to trade weight on this story. I am very glad I did. I tore through all six issues one rainy Saturday afternoon, curled up with a coffee. The story swept me along, and I was genuinely thrilled by the developments of the story, and how Zdarsky weaved in elements from the core Spider-Man narrative and managed to put a new spin on them. Bagley, one of the best Spider-Man artists of the past 30 years, gives the whole thing a legitimacy, having been there for a lot of the story points referenced in the issues. It also gives him a chance to draw classic Spider-Man, i.e. the John Romita era. The issues, or chapters as they are in the collected edition, all take place in different decades. The 60s are set up in part one, running through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the noughties and the 10s as we go along, with occasional epilogues set in different years. Now, I am going to go through the issues, talking about the major plot developments, so if you haven't read this, I urge you to switch this off, go and buy a copy at your local comic shop, and then read it and come back. Or buy it on Comixology if you do not have a local comic book store. You can thank me later. Still here? Well, it's on you then, at this point, that any developments are ruined for you. Okay? Okay. Issue 1 takes place in 1966. Peter has been Spider-Man for four years and is now in college. The status quo is very much as we recall it from the John Romita run, with Peter Parker juggling his college life, his responsibility to Aunt May, and his relationship with Gwen Stacy, alongside his side careers as Spider-Man and a photojournalist. 
Zarsky already seeds the ageing narrative by having Peter refer to his upcoming internship upon completion of his college life, placing him at around 19 years of age. He has managed to secure an internship at the Baxter Building, although Norman Osborne, who we meet here for the first time, is keen to have Peter work for him. Peter and Gwen are in a relationship, and Professor Miles Warren seems to keep a close eye on them both. Hmm. In an interesting development, Zdarsky has Jonah being investigated by the police for his involvement in the creation of the Scorpion and the Spider Slayers. Bagley does a great job of making this look like it's really taking its toll on Jonah. This is a development the original comic should have followed up on, but never did. So seeing Zdarsky take this path was rewarding for a long-time fan like myself. A subplot that runs through the entire series is Peter's concern that he isn't doing enough. In this issue, it manifests itself as a notion that he should sign up for Vietnam. Vietnam was a far more complicated situation than World War II, and as such, the black and white nature of superhero comics meant they stayed well away from it as a topical issue, beyond mentioning that it was going on and having characters like Flash Thompson join the army. Taking the premise of this series to its logical conclusion, Zdarsky has Iron Man be heavily involved in NARM, although Captain America has, as yet, not taken a stance. This plays into the main story where Peter attends Flash's farewell party. In the comics, Flash seemed to have a farewell party every other month, but here it's the one and only. Over the years, Peter and Flash's relationship softened and they became more friendly, but there was never really a moment where they apologised to each other and moved on. Zdarsky gives us that moment here, and it's really quite beautiful. Peter has a moment with Flash where he asks why he's joining up, given that fighting in a war brought out the worst in Flash's father. Flash tells Peter it's what Spider-Man would do. Peter is shocked. Flash lays it out that Spider-Man is making a difference here, in New York, so he, Flash, can make a difference overseas. It's a lovely moment between the two, and not for the first time, it's a scene I wish we'd had in the main books. You can question when, prior to this, Flash and Peter would have had a heart-to-heart about Flash's home situation, but they've moved on a little bit since high school, and maybe Flash told Harry, and Harry told Peter, or whatever. It doesn't really matter to the story overall, as it allows us a really nice moment between these two characters. Norman Osborn is also at Flash's party, having insisted himself upon Harry and attended ostensibly to give thanks to Flash for his service. However, he's really here to tell Peter that he knows his secret and that he has secreted a number of pumpkin bombs around the party. Should Peter say anything, he'll blow them. Lucky pumpkin bombs. Peter and Norman would probably survive, but everyone else would die. Peter agrees to meet Norman outside and they fight as Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin wants Peter to be his son and heir, not that weakling Harry. Norman is a real bastard in this story. His plan to expose Peter makes far more sense and is far more brutal than in the corresponding narrative in the main titles. And the whole Ur thing came from much later. After Norman returned from the dead in the main books, as a result of the clone saga, he became obsessed with Peter being his true Ur, and this also made its way into the 2002 Sam Raimi movie. 
The fight results in Norman losing his memory, and in a wonderfully Spider-Manish moment, Peter considers letting him die in the fire, thus solving all his problems. He's Peter Parker, though, and he won't do that, leading to the same rather silly conclusion as in the main books, where Norman gets amnesia and conveniently forgets everything he's just learned. However, Zdarsky takes a left turn, one that really sends this story in another but perhaps more logical direction. Spider-Man runs into Captain America, and Cap tells Spider essentially what Flash told him. Yes, going to Nam would be honourable, and as such, Cap has made the decision to go. But Spider-Man has his own story, his own path, and that path may well be here in New York. Peter realises that the path he's chosen is to stay and help here, and to do that, he needs to turn Norman in. He can't let his fear of his ID being revealed prevent him from doing the right thing. Norman, as the Green Goblin, has hurt many people and could hurt many more. And it's Peter's responsibility to take him out of the picture. This is bigger than Peter Parker. This was the huge development that really swings this story in its different direction. Peter grows up here in a way the standard monthly narrative would never allow him to do with its amnesia cheat. Peter turns Norman in anonymously, leads the police to the clues, and they arrest Norman, a Norman that doesn't have a clue what's happening. This leads Peter to make another important decision, but that one is taken out of his hands when Gwen places her hand under his shirt to feel and then see his Spider-Man costume. These latter developments really spin this story in a new and more interesting direction. If you've listened to me go through Amazing Spider-Man on the various episodes of the show, you'll have heard me say how much I wish Stan had had the nerve to pull the trigger on Peter telling Gwen his secret. I really feel that that would have been truly groundbreaking. Sadly, it was not to be. But in this story, Starsky can do exactly that. And where the story can go now is limitless. The series had me from this point on. The issue closes with a two-page epilogue set in 1967, where Captain America is preventing US soldiers from harming Vietnamese families. This is a development I can understand some people being upset at, but it's really only here to provide the political background for the rest of the series. Zdarsky isn't just altering Spider-Man's world here, he's altering all of the Marvel Universe. And as such, this is an intriguing and provocative development. Over on Hey Kids Comics, the show I did with my son before he grew up and left home, very considerate of him, uh, whenever we covered stories like this, the Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale colours books especially, we had a section called Continuity and Nitpicks, where we made reference to differences in the narrative and how it played out in the original stories. This was never intended to be malicious, merely us having fun with the more continuity-minded fans. Sadly, Michael has his own life now and couldn't be here for this recording, but these continuity nitpicks are dedicated to him, and hopefully there will be a new Hey Kids comic coming for Christmas. It's my Christmas present to you. To prepare for this section, I consulted with my omnibus editions, my Comicsology digital copies of the Masterworks, and Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. You may have heard a disparaging remark about Mike's Amazing World on another show I'm on, and I want to put this out there. This isn't my opinion at all. I love Mike's Amazing World and think it's a great site and very much a labour of love. 
The first chapter of this story, as I say, takes place in 1966, which in real terms covers Amazing Spider-Man issues 35 through 46, the last few issues of Steve Ditko's run and the start of John Romita. Starsky takes some liberties with the original story here, as Flash's first farewell party took place in Amazing Issue 47, which came out in January of 1967, and took place after Norman Osborn discovered Peter's secret in Amazing Spider-Man Issues 39 and 40. Zdarsky pushes back Norman's discovering Peter's secret and has it play out slightly differently. Peter sells Jonah pictures of Spider-Man fighting Mysterio, which didn't happen at all in this era. Spidey last met Mysterio in issue 24, but as Professor Reinhardt, not Mysterio, and he wouldn't meet him again until issue 66. It's here, though, that Starsky really changes things, which really sets his story on a different path. This feels, though, very much like a 60s story, with the really groovy fashions and the protest marches and a lot of other stuff. Starsky also introduces Civil War a lot earlier than 2006, planting the seeds in 1967 and using Vietnam as the catalyst. Issue 2 takes place in 1977, with Peter visiting Flash's grave, who it turns out was killed in Nam. Peter and Gwen, now 30 years of age, both look great, with Bagley ditching Gwen's standard long hair and headband for a delightful bob. Harry is running Oscorp and is engaged to Murray Jane, whilst Peter works for Reed Richards at the Future Foundation, and Gwen works for Professor Warren, who started his own bioengineering company. In this reality, Nam never ended, and in fact is still going on. Otto Octavius works with Reed and Peter, having turned over a new leaf after marrying May Parker. Harry, meanwhile, is talking to his father, who is the real controlling power behind the throne, but he's in jail, and he has one last job for Harry. Apparently, at some point in the intervening years, Norman's memory has returned. Peter pops by a disco, it is 1977, where Mary Jane is performing a DJ set. She's a drunk, and clearly not happy with Harry, but Harry is very, very rich. Some may take issue with this as well, but to me this seemed a perfect outcropping of who MJ was and where she could go without Peter's influence. According to her backstory in Amazing Spider-Man 259 from 1984, Murray Jane came from a broken home, a home broken by alcohol and jealousy, and as such it's easily a pattern she herself could have fallen into. She also knows Peter is Spider-Man, having learned that at age 15, just as she did in the main continuity. This is an interesting character beat as well. Murray Jane basically blames Peter for Flash's death, saying that with all his power he could have done something. This is bollocks, of course. If Iron Man and Cat can't stop what's happening in Nam, Spider-Man wouldn't make any difference at all. But it's MJ's own insecurities being manifested by the alcohol. It plays into Peter's fears that he isn't doing enough, but it also shows he's made the right decision. He'd make no difference over there. Here... He's saving lives. Peter takes his frustrations out on Reed, accusing him of doing nothing either, something that has cost him his marriage as soon left him for Namor. Nothing is mentioned about Johnny and Ben. Peter takes a job offer with Warren and Gwen, but the Black Goblin attacks, and it is revealed that this is the last job Norman had for Harry, and that Warren has been working on clones. Norman funded the research. He wanted a clone of himself to pin the crimes on. A clone of Peter, for some reason. And Warren created a clone of Gwen to satisfy his own carnal lusts. However, the Gwen in the tubes is the real one. And the Gwen married to Peter 
is the clone. In the melee, the Norman and Gwen tubes are destroyed, but the Peter clone lives thanks to his spider strength. This was a great twist in the story. Zdarsky gets to have his cake and eat it, having Peter be happily married to Gwen before taking it all away, leading to a relationship later with Mary Jane. However, Gwen is still with Peter, albeit a different Peter. He also gets to kill a Gwen, as per narrative demands. However, this is where the series could have done with some extra pages or another issue. The epilogue takes place in 1978, and Gwen being a clone apparently destroys her marriage to Peter. She leaves with the Peter clone, now named Ben Riley. She takes the name Helen, and they move on to a new life together. Peter is angry and upset, and he turns to Murray Jane to help him through it. This would really have benefited from being fleshed out some more, detailing the marriage collapse, Gwen's relationship with Ben, Murray Jane and Harry's breakup. Perhaps some explanation also as to how the Norman clone, which would have had Norman's enhanced strength, died, but Peter's clone, in possession of spider strength, didn't. That seemed to me to be a little bit of a convenient development. More could have been perhaps made of exactly when Warren swapped out the different Gwens and how he pulled it off. It doesn't really matter, the issue is still effective, but... You know, would have been nice to see it. Continuity and nitpicks. Issue 2, set in 1977, which in real terms covers Amazing Spider-Man 167 through 178, the Len Wein run, and Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man issues 5 through 16. Zdarsky uses nothing from Peter Parker, which is a wise choice because nothing of note happened. Obviously, the changes he made in issue one mean this is a very different 1977 to the one we saw. Norman and Gwen are still alive, and Harry and Murray Jane are engaged. This was the era that Bart Hamilton became the Green Goblin, as Dursky gets rid of that and has Harry become the Black Goblin. Professor Warren's cloning techniques appear here, a little later than in the regular continuity. Norman is only indirectly responsible for Gwen's death here, as he funded Warren's research. Zdarsky also has the clone of Peter adopt the name Ben Riley and leave with the clone of Gwen to live their own lives in 1978, much earlier than 1995 when it happened in regular history. Gwen takes the name Helen after her mother, who first appeared in Peter Parker Spider-Man Minus One in 1997, and Peter turns to MJ, just as he did when Gwen died in Amazing Spider-Man issue 122. May Parker and Otto Octavius married kind of, in Amazing Spider-Man issue 131 in 1974, but this was all a ruse to allow Otto access to a nuclear island May had just inherited. I'm not making that up. They'd met a few times over the years prior to that, with May often thinking Otto was quite a nice, well-mannered and intelligent person. Issue 3 opens in 1984, with Murray Jane in labour and Peter off on Secret War World. Peter is using Reed as a cautionary tale. Reed has pushed everyone away in his quest to be perfect and to look after the world, but that's left him with no one to fight for. I can only presume Secret Wars played out as it did in the original comics, as Peter still needs a new costume and still uses an alien device to fashion the black and white one, which of course is a symbiote. He arrives home too late to witness the birth of his two children, a twin brother and sister, MJ names Claire and Benjamin. Zdarsky stumped me here, 
I can find no precedence for MJ naming her daughter Claire, other than she likes the name. Which would be novel, I admit. Not every child is named after someone. In the absence of the heroes, Earth went to hell, with Russia and America engaging in a terrifying conflict. Parker Industries is trying to clean up the mess. Peter is aware that his costume is a symbiote and that it is dangerous, but he has a contingency plan should he need it. But he can't not use the black suit, as it's keeping his reflexes sharp. Peter makes a big deal about the fact that he's slowing down over the years and even refers to himself as an old man at one point. But he's only 34 here, so I wouldn't have thought he'd have slowed down that much yet. MJ is struggling with Peter's responsibilities, and again Zdarsky depicts a real marriage. Mary Jane loses her temper with Peter, with having to raise twins and look after May, who now has Alzheimer's. As she flips out at Peter, and rightly so for never being there, she even mentions having to compete with the ghost of the perfect Gwen Stacy. Peter and MJ never had arguments like this in the main continuity, and it was one of my problems with the writing of the marriage. Real couples fall out. It happens. Marriage is sometimes hard work. Peter and MJ had a furry tale marriage, which may be romantic, but it's not real. He, as Darsky, makes us realise that it's not fun being married to a superhero. Craven the Hunter, dying of cancer, at this point, finds Spider-Man and buries him alive, as in Craven's last hunt, but this time the symbiote saves Peter. But in doing so, it drives Peter mad. He tries to kill Craven, but Murray Jane saves him using his aforementioned failsafe device. However, it's too much for her, and she leaves with the twins. This is a pretty heartbreaking ending. Peter clearly isn't learning quickly enough from Reed, although it's possible that the symbiote has affected his mind. The scenes with MJ leaving with the kids, leaving Peter and May Parker, who has no idea what's happening, are really hard to read. Craven, about to commit suicide, is melded with the symbiote, which we'll play later in the story. Continuity and nitpicks! Issue 3 is set in 1984, covering Amazing Spider-Man 251 through 262, the end of Roger Stern and John Romita Jr.'s run, and the beginning of Tom DeFalco and Ron Frenz's tenure, as well as Peter Parker issues 89 through 100, Al Milgram's eminently forgettable run. Starsky again uses nothing from Peter Parker. Secret Wars did happen in 1984, so all the black costume stuff is era-appropriate, but Murray Jane is pregnant with her and Peter's child, something that didn't originally happen until Spectacular Spider-Man 220 in 1995. Zdarsky weaves Craven's last hunt into the narrative, which originally took place in Amazing Spider-Man 293-294, Web of Spider-Man 31 and 32, and Peter Parker 131 and 132 in 1987. Issue 4 is set in 1995. Following May's death, Otto goes off the deep end and locates Ben Riley in Chicago. Meanwhile, in New York, Peter is fighting off a corporate takeover from Stark International. Tony Stark is full-on civil war, slightly arrogant my way or the highway in his characterisation here. It could be seen as a bit off, but this is a Tony who went all in on his weapons development after Nam rather than retreating from it. Rather than retreating from it, it's also a Tony who fully believes he's right. To be fair, he does have a number of good points. His weapons did end the war with Russia and keep the peace. 
However, he crosses a line in implying Peter's family would be in danger without him. Peter's reaction is far more forceful than the Peter we know. He basically threatens to beat Tony within an inch of his life if he even looks at MJ and the kids. Nice. Also, the fact that Tony is Iron Man is still a secret, or is a secret from Peter anyway. Registration presumably hasn't happened yet. Peter is now in a relationship with Jessica Jones, who I presume was still in high school with Peter, as per the Bendis retcon. Jessica was only created in 2001, but makes an earlier appearance here. Ock arrives in New York and lures Peter as Spider-Man into a trap. He already has Ben and Harry in thrall, and is interested in Warren's cloning technique, hoping to clone himself a new body. However, it all tits up when Ock reveals Peter to be the clone, and Ben to be the real deal. I have to confess, when I was reading this, my initial reading of the story, this was a massive what-the-fuck moment that nearly lost me. There was no way this could be true, given what Zdarsky had already stated and set up, and I was really ready to be pissed off that this story had gone that way. Happily, it's just a rug pull. What's not happy is that Harry is killed by Ock in the ensuing fight. Starsky does incredibly well here. The emotional impact of both Harry's death and Ben's realisation that he may be the real deal is all handled very well. Ock flees, and Peter hands over all data and materials on the running of Parker Industries to Ben and goes off to live his life with MJ and the kids. Or, uh, that's what he tells Ben. On the way, he drops by Norman Osborne, who he has had Jessica keep an eye on. Norman was behind it all. He gave Ock the cloning data, and he faked the results to make it look like Peter was the clone. But Peter isn't dumb. He knows that's not true. He knows he's the real Peter Parker. I breathed a sigh of relief here, and complimented Zdarsky on this plot development and how he successfully manipulated me. Not only is it a nice nod to the clone saga's conclusion, Norman did it all, but it's handled much better here. Granted, Zdarsky has the benefit of hindsight and of writing a complete story, but it's still well played. Some may say Peter has been selfish here, but I read it as him putting Ben before himself. Ben has always struggled with being a clone. This development allows Ben peace of mind, whilst also letting Peter have something resembling a normal life, and also lets Peter fulfil his true, real responsibility that of being a father and husband. Peter has to tell Norman of Harry's death at Otto's hands, but as usual, Norman blames Peter for everything, despite this all being Norman's doing. What a loser. Always somebody else's fault, eh, Norman? He should have been a politician. Norman has a heart attack whilst trying to tackle Peter, and this solidifies Peter's resolve. All that time wasted. Despite it all, Norman still had a son that loved him, a family that needed him, and he wasted it all on petty revenge. Peter determines not to make the same mistakes, and he leaves to be with MJ and the kids. Starsky pretty much gives Peter and MJ the ending originally plotted for them in the Clone Saga, but again pulls it off better. Here, Ben takes over as Peter Lockstock and two smoking web shooters, and Peter simply moves off to Portland to be with MJ. I assume 
No one knows of him, though, so he passes himself off as Mary Jane's estranged husband, and they're trying to make it work. It's a satisfying ending for the characters. Continuity and nitpicks! Issue 4 is set in 1995, covering Amazing Spider-Man 399 through 408, which covered the end of the second Clone Saga and the beginning of Ben Reilly's brief time as Spider-Man, which Starsky weaves beautifully into this issue. Ben was originally revealed to be the real deal in Spectacular Spider-Man 226 in 1995, but this was negated in Spider-Man issue 75 in 1996. Peter, leaving it all behind and passing the mantle of Spider-Man to Ben, is a direct nod to the end of the second Clone Saga. The Parker Industries material is from much later, though, the superior Spider-Man run from 2013. Harry originally died in Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200 in 1993, so Harry got two more years of life here. Norman originally died in Amazing Spider-Man 122 in 1973, so he fared a lot better. Issue 5 is set in 2006 and opens with Marlon killing Ben Riley. Marlon knows Ben isn't the real Peter, but it isn't clear whether Ben acknowledges this before he dies. Over in Portland, Peter is arguing with Claire over a college scholarship when the news of Spider-Man's death comes in. Again, the question of if responsibility to one's family trumps Peter's responsibility to the world comes up, and ultimately I'm with Peter. Only Peter can be a good father to Claire and Ben, and a good husband to Mary Jane Watson. There are tons of other heroes in the Marvel Universe who can look after the world. Claire argues that Peter has spent his life reacting, and nothing has gotten better. Following a major catastrophe, which is implied to be 9-11, Peter helped as much as he could, but Tony Stark used those events to push registration through. Responding to close accusations, Peter acts. Firstly, he reports his story to Betty Brandt, now editor-in-chief at The Bugle, following Jonah's death. Nothing is said about Jonah's brushes with the law back in the 60s. Then he tells Tony Stark to drop dead when Tony offers Peter an amnesty if he'll register. The story is then a two-pronged fight. Peter and Captain America's rebels versus Tony and his crew, and Marlon versus Mary Jane Claire and Benji. Benji figures out that Marlon is only indestructible when he's not feeding, and he offers himself as bait so Claire can take him down. He's nearly killed in the process. Spider-Man stops Iron Man and Cap fighting when Spider-Man uses a fail-safe pulse to knock out all of Tony's crew. Spider-Man knows Tony would have that fail-safe in place. He has to be in control of every situation. And that's what brings him down. Still, Tony offers them all a chance to bring this to an end. Collaborate. The issue raises the same point Civil War did, only better. And it's similar in many ways to The Dark Knight Returns, in that the Superman we see in that story is seen through Batman's eyes, as it's Batman's story. It's the same here. The Iron Man and Captain America we see here are seen through Peter's eyes. And as such, we only get snippets of their story. As with Civil War, both sides have a point. But unlike Civil War, both sides are better delineated. Tony isn't wrong when he says there has to be checks and balances. Cap and Peter are arguing they can't be at Tony's beck and call. What happens to freedom of choice? It's very curious to me that everyone who's done Civil War after that initial Civil War miniseries, which I think is god-awful, have done it better. Proving that it wasn't a bad idea, it's just that initial miniseries by Mark Millar was, well, shit. Continuity and nitpicks! 
Issue 5 is in 2006 and would cover Amazing Spider-Man 128 through 536. The J. Michael Straczynski run starting with the Risible, the other storyline, and culminating with the end of Civil War. Spider-Man fights Marlon in this issue, which actually happened in 2001, and Peter returns to take the mantle of Spider-Man, which happened in the original history in 1996. Ben doesn't seem to suffer clone degeneration, and we learn that Jonah is dead. Nothing is mentioned of Gwen slash Helen. Civil War and the heroes on Cap's side are era-appropriate. Issue 6 takes place in 2019, and is the furthest removed from the main narrative, and even the rest of the series. Benji still walks with a cane after his encounter with Marlon, but Claire has essentially taken on the mantle of a spider-woman. The Civil War is finally over. Hero no longer fights Hero, as that only leads to the villains winning. And in this case, that villain is Doctor Doom. In the interim, Miles Morales has appeared, having had exactly the same accident Peter had, bitten by a radioactive spider, etc, etc. Doom won the Civil War, with many heroes and villains left dead or missing, including Tony Stark. Peter, as pretty much the only one left, is de facto leader of the Resistance against Doom, and he and Miles are journeying to one of Tony's space stations, where they plan to drop a super virus into the computers, and then distribute it on a global scale, destroying Doom's tech. However, the space station is attacked by Venom, aka Kraven the Hunter. It's not clear if this is another attack by Cravenom, or if Craven's been doing bugger all for 30 odd years. Peter is ready for him though, with a sonic wrist blaster, and this is kind of gross. Craven is nothing but a skeleton, having been dead for years. The symbiote kept him animate. Ugh. It's not the only surprise. Miles' body has been taken over by Otto Octavius. This leads to a battle in the mind between Ock and Peter, which is really well depicted by Bagley. I haven't mentioned Bagley a lot in this recap, largely because I can't really think of many different ways of saying the art is magnificent, but, well, the art is magnificent. The fight is especially striking, taking place in a white mindscape, and culminating with May Parker showing up and telling Otto and Peter that everyone wants something, and it's really to fight. For Otto, love is the way. For Peter, the need to save everybody is his driving force. Peter really wants to save Ben Parker, but he can't. So he tries to save everyone. It's as simple, yet as great a summation of Spider-Man's soul as any I've ever read. Kudos to Zdarsky here as well. He's taken the rather jokey idea that May and Otto married and made it poignant. It really works. After the Mindscape battle, Peter hits the deck running. He sends Otto back in the one and only escape pod and tells him to give Miles his life back. Be a hero for May. With that, Peter tries to hold the space station together long enough to deploy the electromagnetic pulse that will disable Doom's technology. He fails. But in the last instant, the symbiote envelops Peter. Its power allows Peter the strength to save the station, holding on just long enough to save the world. Save everyone. One last time. Boom. This was beautiful. The symbiote loved Peter. That's what it wanted. 
playing into the themes of this issue. The simplest explanation was that in its last act, it gave itself to save Peter, which in turn changes the course of the world. Throughout the stories, Darsky has had Peter wonder what his place was in this world. Where did he belong? Was he doing enough? As Peter dies, he shows a final mindscape moment with Murray Jane. Jackpot. The pulse does its job and mankind rises up, led by the next generation of superheroes. Peter Parker made the world a better place because that's what we all should do. Leave the world in a better place than it was. If we're not doing that, we're doing it wrong. The story concludes with Miles taking over the mantle of Spider-Man. Peter's final dream is a good one. He saves Uncle Ben. And so concludes a genuinely wonderful, surprising, touching and emotive story. A true gem. Continuity and nitpicks issue 6, set in 2019 and features Miles Morales as a main character who was introduced in the Ultimate Universe in 2011. The issues of Amazing Spider-Man are still ongoing as of this writing, but it's the Nick Spencer run which Stadarsky takes nothing from. Miles has his body taken over by Otto Octavius, a nod to the superior Spider-Man run by Dan Slott, with various artists from 2013 to 2014. Ultimately, Spider-Man Life Story was one of those comic series that came just at the right time. With my becoming increasingly disillusioned with the big two, I've been moving away to other stuff to read. Older comics, independent comics, novels. So to be treated to such a provocative and risky series featuring on my favourite character was a delight. It isn't completely perfect, but it's close enough to make no odds. My biggest problem is that it wasn't long enough. And that's not a bad thing. I always leave them begging for more. Now, no... I don't want this to be an ongoing. John Byrne's Generations and Frank Miller's Dark Knight both returned to the well too many times so as to dilute what made the original so special. So this needs to be a finite thing. Sadly, though, with only six issues, it glosses over so many interesting developments. The J. Jonah Jameson subplot is never followed up on. And we never even see George Stacy or Robbie Robertson, although we can infer from the events of the story that George isn't killed by Dr. Octopus. We also never got to see what happened to the clone of Gwen. When Ben takes over as Peter in issue 4, she isn't referred to or mentioned again. I think this series could have easily maintained another six issues. As it was, I'm happy with what I got. It's nice to be surprised, and that a reader of such long-standing as I could be so delighted by this series says a lot about its quality and the work of Chips Darsky and Mark Bagley. My hat's off to you, gentlemen. Okay, let's have another rummage through the email sack, should we? 
Our first email tonight is from Alistair Jakes. I am now watching the original Star Trek. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alistair. After I finished watching The Next Generation, I intended to watch Voyager, but I'm still swooning over Dr. Beverly Crusher. And the only way I can see more of her is if I watch the films. The films that began with the crossover with Kirk. So here I am watching the original Star Trek. I've watched the first series and I'm 17 episodes into series two. I see why you like Kirk. To be clear, I don't like Kirk. Not in the episodes I've seen. I do, however, see how compared to Picard, you might like him. Picard insists that they are explorers, and he is a noted diplomat. Whilst in the first episode with the Klingons, Kirk insists that he's a soldier, not a diplomat. There is something of the Cisco-like pragmatic use of violence. Instead of Picard's moralising over the Prime Directive and the need to not intervene, we get Kirk agonising over whether to stand by and let people die, or to act and change a people in the hopes of protecting them. Kirk has too much of the Riker swagger about him for me to like him. Give me Picard's awkwardness around women over Kirk's creepy overconfidence any day. Seriously, the original Star Trek is so creepily sexist and often has plots out of an erotica novel. In the first ever Transporter Malfunction episode, The Enemy Within, Kirk is split in two and his evil half tries to rape Yeoman Rand. That's an actual plot point of the episode, and the moral of the story is that Kirk needs the evil half of him to be a good captain. That most times Kirk kisses a woman by forcibly grabbing them and holding them to him is just creepy in that light. See, I did, again, I don't think this is going to come as a surprise to you. I disagree with that. I don't think Kirk has Riker's creepy swagger. I think Kirk has not and never would hit on members of his crew, which Riker does all the time. Witness the Naked Now. No, the Naked Time, isn't it? The Naked Now is the next generation version. The Naked Time, where Kirk actively talks about the fact that, you know, Yeoman Rand's a very attractive woman, but he can't pay any attention to her because she's a crewman. And he will never pay any attention to a crewman. He's married to his ship. And if you have a look at the relationships that Kirk has in the show, most of them are with equals. The times that you're referring to, though, where he grabs hold of them and kisses them forcibly, he's normally playing a con. He's normally playing a game with them, like in Gamesters of Triskelion or By Any Other Name, where he's he's running a con to try and save the ship. He's seducing those women in an effort to serve a greater goal. And there's no implication that he really is attracted to them. He's just doing what he has to do. Riker most of the time came across as predatory. Kirk never comes across as predatory. With regards to the enemy within, I, I actually agree with that. I think we need our dark sides. Um, I don't. The thing I don't like about the enemy within is Spock making a joke of Yeoman Rand's almost rape at the end of the episode. That is incredibly insensitive and tactless, and it's all the more surprising coming from Spock and that Leonard Nimoy allowed it to happen. Um, Kirk, for his part, seems quite contrite and apologetic about what Rand has gone through, if I'm remembering the episode correctly. It's Spock who's a tactless asshole. So, you know, I, I think we're going to agree to disagree with, with Kirk and Riker. I think Riker's a predatory asshole. I think Kirk genuinely cares about the people he had relationships with, and anyone other than that, he was doing it for a greater goal. Like James Bond. Although I don't think Kirk is as a sexist as James Bond. Is there sexism in the original show? Yes, undoubtedly. That whole stuff in Balance of Terror about how a woman will get married and leave the service and that whole thing in turn about Intruder, which is a horribly sexist episode, about how women can't be in command of starships because they're too emotional. And that whole plot in Wolf in the Fold where Scotty apparently is uh, now feeling really 
antagonistic towards women because a woman caused an accident that nearly got him killed, which is bullshit, by the way. Scotty doesn't seem to harbour any ill will to women, but that's a very sexist part of the story. But it's nowhere near as sexist as that episode of Deep Space Nine where Quark hits on a Dabo girl, but it's okay. It's not sexual harassment because she's really into it. That's far more sexist than anything the original show did. Anyway, continuing with Alistair's email. Spock, Chekhov and Uhura make the series for me. I love Walter Koenig from Babylon 5, whilst his Chekhov is so adorably naive and cheerful. Uhura's singing is a delight. Spock is clearly the data of the original series, with new powers pulled out as the plot demands, but Nimoy plays him well. In general, I prefer Discovery to the original series, but I'll admit that having not seen how classic Klingons look and act, it is hilarious to think that not long before the original series, the Klingons of Discovery were gadding about like gothic bats. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not really enamoured with um, with Discovery, I have to say. It's one of those things that uh, it's not really floating my boat. I'm looking forward to Picard, though. I'm hoping that Picard is a fun show. Okay, our next email is from Shag, Shag Matthews. Hello, Shag, of Fire and Water Network Podcasts. Hi, Andy. Hi, Shag. It's been a while since I sent an email, but I wanted to let you know I'm still loving your show. Each episode brings me so much joy, whether I'm familiar with the subject or not. Some quick rapid-fire thoughts, as I'm terrible at taking notes while listening, usually driving, mowing the lawn on the treadmill, or such. The greatest American heroine, you are a braver man than I. I tried to watch this a few years back and just couldn't make it through the saccharineness of the show. Makes me sad too as I'll watch anything Robert Culp is in. That said, I enjoyed your coverage and appreciated you finding some positivity in your watching. Marvel's Galactica. I was smiling ear to ear during this entire episode. A complete delight. Issue 23, the one with the enormous ponytailed Jolly, is one of the earliest comics I can recall buying myself just a few months before I started buying Marvel Star Wars regularly. Cemented my love of Marvel space opera comics. Wonderful coverage from you and it scratched the exact itch I was hoping. When I suggested the idea to you, I knew I wanted to explore all the issues but couldn't find the time or energy to do it justice. You did. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's much appreciated. Yeah, because you did. You did provoke that episode. That is entirely on you. So I'm glad that you enjoyed it because it was for you, mate. TJ Hooker, another great podcast covering an episode I recalled existing but couldn't recall anything specific about. My only criticism of the coverage, a little more praise for the 1980s gorgeous Heather Locklear would not have gone amiss. Had she been in the episode on any interesting level i probably would have commented on her she's barely in that one you know i think she's got one scene and she contributes nothing so it kind of just zoomed by me that she was even in it maybe she was filming dynasty that week i don't know trek at 20 i have never read this issue pretty sure i own it so i need to rectify that it does sound like an excellent way to celebrate the anniversary UFO, Time Lash, haven't listened yet as I haven't gotten to that episode of the show, but thank you for encouraging me to watch UFO, I am loving that series so much, UFO has a certain weekly Star Trek vibe, can't explain it yet, I just feel it, it's possible I love this more than my beloved Blake 7, hmm, not sure, we'll have to think on this, right, well go back, listen to my Time Lash episode when you've watched Time Lash, because I am steadfast in my belief that Time Lash is one of the finest 50 minutes of science fiction television ever made of any series ever. I'm looking forward to seeing if you agree with me. 
Horror of Fang Rock. Not much more to add here other than an amazing episode that really holds up. Glad you enjoyed it. I found a reference to it in a V-book recently. <laughs> ranking DC Marvel crossovers. Wonderful list. As you said, everyone's own rankings would vary. I'm not particularly fond of your number one pick. Sorry. I would personally select the first Superman-Spider-Man team up at the top of the list. One minor footnote in history during the Night Quest era issues of Batman and Detective or thereabouts, Jean-Paul Vallée reflects on all the foes he's battled, and he includes the Marvel foe Jigsaw in the list. I was surprised DC got away with that, but perhaps the name is generic enough to just sweep it under the rug. Well, I guess I had more to say than I expected. Just really wanted to let you know I'm listening and enjoy your show so very much, and your sign-off continues to inspire hope in us all. Thanks, the irredeemable shag, the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, thank you very much for your email thank you everyone who emails in i've still got a couple in the sack but as usual these things i record them as and when i can and normally as i'm just on my way out the door to do something else which is why they're normally only about an hour long so if you want to email in heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address drop me a line it's always lovely to hear from you and i'll be back next time with whatever i decide to talk about because i haven't decided yet you know that's how these things work isn't it i'll see you next time and everything is gonna be okay. See you soon. Bye-bye.